Tonight, we are pleased to partner again with the Royal Oak Foundation, the American membership affiliate of the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And if you would like to learn more about Royal Oak, please speak with Kristen Sarley after the talk. Kristen, could you give us a wave? <laughs> Kristen's in the back. And I'd also like to thank the Freeman's Auction House for its generous support of the program tonight. Our speaker is best-selling biographer, writer, lecturer, and journalist Anne Seba. Born in London, she read history at King's College London. Ms. Seba has written nine critically acclaimed works of nonfiction, as well as short stories, radio and television documentaries, musical stories, and numerous articles. She began her career at the BBC World Services in the Arabic department and is former Reuters, a former Reuters foreign correspondent. Many of Ms. Seba's biographies focus on strong women who, against all odds, have carved out a meaningful life fighting for their own rights as well as the rights of others. Tonight, she will speak about her newest book, Les Parisiennes, How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved, and Died in the 1940s. We have a bookseller here tonight, and Ms. Seba will be available to sign books after the talk. Through a careful study of a broad range of Parisian women, among them collaborators and resistors, journalists, actresses, housewives, and prostitutes, Ms. Seba reveals truths about basic human instincts and desires. Please join me in welcoming Anne Seba to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much for that very generous introduction, and thank you all for turning out. It's just lovely to be here, one of my all-time favorite venues. Can we have the lights just a bit down, because I think I probably don't need them, and you need it darker to look at the images, but let me move to there. Okay, well, shall I start or can somebody, okay, you'll turn the lights on when, when I get going. Um, okay, I'm going to assume a fairly reasonable, well-read knowledge in an audience like this of the period I'm talking about, of, of World War II and France in particular. So I'll um, expect that you all know there are three principal men in this story, Hitler, Pétain, and de Gaulle, and I'm going to tell you as little about them as I can possibly manage. <laughs> as you heard in the introduction, Les Parisiennes is unashamedly a story about women. It's how various groups of women responded to the German occupation, couturiers, milliners, collaborators, resistors, actors, singers, concierges, and housewives. And I'm particularly interested in ordinary women and how ordinary women respond in extraordinary circumstances. So why has it taken so long in what is, after all, a pretty crowded field of historians writing about France during World War II? Why has it taken so long to look at the diversity of responses of women? 
Well, the easy answer is that female heroism just didn't suit the mythology that General de Gaulle put in place immediately after the, the liberation. There are many other reasons, and we'll come on to them as I talk about the individual stories. Many women were self-effacing, didn't want to talk about the awful things that they'd seen in order to protect their children. They wanted to get on with their lives to establish some kind of normalcy. But I think if you look at this picture, you start to understand. This is a picture from 2015, last year, when President Hollande, and let us not um, impugn his pure motives, decided to rebury, to honor, to women of the French resistance, Germaine Tillon and Geneviève de Gaulle. I did actually interview Geneviève de Gaulle in 2000. And he decided it was time to honor them at the Pantheon. That's France's secular temple to the great and good. And it has carved over the front to the great men of France, a grateful fatherland. I think that tells you quite a lot. So, in fact, what you see in this picture, the coffin with the tricolor draped over it, is not the body of either of the women I've mentioned, because the families decided that actually they didn't want their bodies disturbed. It's some soil taken from their graves. But at least two women were finally honored because until 2015, there was only one woman in the Pantheon, Marie Curie. So if you look at this, you start also to understand um, more about the background because France was, at the outbreak of war, a deeply patriarchal society. Women didn't have the vote. Women didn't get the vote in France until 1946. So what you see during the war is women playing a far greater role in society than formerly that society allowed them. Not only that, women weren't allowed to wear trousers too masculine. Women couldn't have their own bank accounts. Women couldn't get jobs without the permission of husbands and fathers. So that's one critical piece of background in understanding this. But it's absolutely not a story of women's history. As far as I'm concerned, it's the history. It's mainstream history. But the other piece of background that I think is important to understand at the back of, of your minds before we launch into the individual stories is France's complicated relationship with its Jewish population. France was the first country in Europe to emancipate the Jews from 1806 onwards. But as any of you who know the Dreyfus story will be aware, the influx of Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe that came throughout the 19th century in search of the enlightenment, in search of liberté, égalité, fraternité, caused a problem among some native French who were 
uncomfortable with the large numbers of Jews who came not only for themselves, but because France wanted them, needed them to work in factories and various other unskilled professions until they built their own lives. So um, if you've been looking at this map while I've been talking to you about that, you'll see that this explains what is often referred to as the French paradox. The blue represents the number of Jews in each country in Europe before the war, and the yellow indicates the number of Jews that remained after the war. So the obvious example where the Jewish population was almost destroyed is Poland. But just take a look at France, because it's quite interesting. I think it's extremely interesting. Approximately 76,000 Jews were deported. Some people say only 76,000, about a quarter of the population of 330,000 Jews that existed in France before the war. So how do you explain that paradox? Well, it's because many individual French people, Catholics and Protestants and many other sects, helped, helped many Jews to hide and to survive. But at the same time, you have to look at that figure of 76,000 and ask, would they have survived if Vichy, a sovereign French state, had not actually proactively deported them? So that's the French paradox, and you'll see it in action during this talk. Now, the other piece before um, I launch into the, the stories of so many of these women has to be answered. What right do I, as an English woman, have to look at French history? Why was I interested in it? We weren't occupied in Britain. I didn't live through the war. Well, the short answer that I'm going to tell you now is that I've always been interested in it, and French history was my subject 100 years ago at university. But um, there is a more precise answer that I'm going to give you um, tonight, and that is that when I finished my biography of Wallace Simpson in 2011, I had lots of wonderful pictures of Cartier jewellery in it, because... Wallace, the Duchess of Windsor, was a great patron of Cartier. But when the book was published, I had a phone call from the head of Van Cleef and Arpel, who took me to task and said, why didn't I have photographs of Van Cleef and Arpel jewellery? That the Duchess of Windsor was a very good customer of theirs too. So I said, this is not a book about jewellery, this is a biography. So he said to me, well, wouldn't I like to come to Paris and have a look at the Van Cleef and Arpel showrooms and workshop, and he'd try and change my mind. Well, you know, what girl can resist a day in Paris looking at Van Cleef? So I went, and the story that I heard there concerned this woman, who was born Rachel Van Cleef but she changed her name to the more French-sounding Renée. She was married to a racing driver, Émile Puisson, so she was good French-sounding Renée Puisson. In 1938, her father died, and she inherited the company. So she was running Van Cleef and Arpel at the time war broke out. And when the Germans occupied in 1940 and insisted on Aryanization, 
René decided to Arianize, that is, sell to a Christian, the Paris branch, but she thought she could take some stock in a suitcase down to Vichy, where the government was established, but where Van Cleef and Arpel already had a boutique. It was a spa town. It was an obvious place for them to have a shop. She thought, if I run a skeleton branch in Vichy, I'll be fine because I know all these people. I know the government. They're, they're my customers. José Laval, for example, daughter of Pierre Laval, she's a friend of mine. She buys from me. I'll be protected. So that's what she did. But in 1942, in December 1942, she threw herself out of the window and committed suicide. And it was hearing that story the day that I went to Paris that really hooked me in because I wanted to understand what suddenly snapped in Renée's life. What was it that tipped her over the edge? But at a broader level, what was it that made jewellery and couture clothes flourish during the war? Because it wasn't only the Germans who were buying. As I saw the file cards from Van Cleef and Arpel, it was many French who were also buying. Why would people at war want to buy jewellery? Why did it matter? And not only jewellery and couture houses, but also the cinema and theatre. All these things flourished at an extraordinary rate. But on the other side was the darkness. People were starving, hungry, being tortured or on the run. And it was this contrast between the light and the dark. And moreover, trying to understand as an English person, how would I have behaved what choices did these people have? That really was what hooked me into to this whole broad story. So let's start in 1939 on the eve of war in the summer. And you have Elsie DeWolf who decides to give the most extravagant circus ball with elephants and white ponies and jugglers and acrobats and it goes on till the small hours as if there was no threat of possible war and even if there was people put their faith in the Maginot line convinced that France would defeat its age-old enemy Germany. But this picture also has a significance which I just want to point out to you. Have a look at Elsie's dress which was designed by Man Bocher, the American couturier who soon fled back to America, because, and the cape is Schiaparelli. But look particularly at the detailed embroidery, the sequins and the butterflies, because when the Germans occupied, Hitler wanted to take the couture industry, lock, stock and barrel, to Germany. And Lucien Lelong, the head of the Chambre Syndicale, fought against this. He fought against it because he said, you can't just take the designers, the brands as they're known today, without the whole back army on whom they depend. And that back army comprised approximately 25,000 women, many of them refugees from Eastern Europe, who worked in their atelier on, with specialist skills like B 
beading, embroidery, inserting zips, adding fur. So by fighting the Germans who wanted to take the couture industry, and he won, he probably saved the lives of about 25,000 women. And the other interest in this particular um, picture is Amy de Sotomayor, said to have been the most beautiful woman at the ball because she's wearing an early Christian Dior gown when nobody had heard of him. He didn't have his own label at this point. He worked for Lucien Lelong. Now, the other thing that happened in Paris in 1939, among the sort of half-hearted preparations where everybody had to have a gas mask that was compulsory. So the designers quickly got on the bandwagon and designed these very fashionable, very expensive, cylindrical-shaped containers for the gas masks. In fact, there wasn't a chemical attack and, and, and they didn't need these gas masks. But the cylindrical bags became so fashionable that women in South America, where there was no war and no threat of war, wanted these cylindrical bags because if Parisiennes were wearing them, they were obviously the, the object to have. So very fashionable bags um, became sold the world over. And the other picture, if you can see here, this woman in her silk stockings looking at a shop which does have a shelter. That was um, certainly something that, that the shops were prepared with. But if you couldn't wear trousers, you had to have fine stockings. Now, silk stockings were, were Quickly, quickly disappeared once the war got underway. And then Parisienne were wearing mesh stockings until the mesh couldn't be mended anymore. And then what did they do? Because to go out with bare legs was absolutely not comme il faut. So they painted their legs with iodine as the war went on. And if they had a steady hand or a friend, then they would um, have someone else paint a line up their legs to imitate a seam. But on the eve of war, jewellery, of course, is one of the things that immediately flourishes. Boucheron told me that they did um, a flourishing trade in engagement rings because the women felt, well, if my husband's going to the front and suppose he gets killed, well, at least if I have an engagement ring, I'll be able to claim a pension. So that's one thing. But a lot of women got married. Others got divorced. It was a time of great change. And the woman you can see in the wedding dress here, in fact, she got married a little bit before, but I want to tell you about her story, partly because she's a bit of a heroine um, for me, but her story is really emblematic at so many levels of Parisienne. She was born Odette Schmoll, so she was part of the haute, haute, bourgeoisie juive, but she felt French. She didn't deny being Jewish, but it was much more important to her that her family had been established in France for so long. She was married at 19. It was almost an arranged marriage to Robert Fabius, who was an antique dealer. Um, and he was a typical Parisian husband. He had several mistresses, and he didn't see why marriage should change any of his habits. Um, they had one child, but the child was looked after by a governess. So on the eve of war, in fact, 
Odette is visiting a psychiatrist because she's so unhappy and so unfulfilled. She can't work, she can't look after her child, she doesn't have a faithful husband. And I'm happy to tell you that war brings her fulfillment. Not only does she join the resistance, but she goes down to Marseille where she has a passionate affair with a communist Corsican trade union leader. Um, the leader of the Sailors' Union, and um, I'm going to tell you more about her when, when we get to that part in the story. It doesn't end happily. Miriam Sanza, the um, exotic-looking woman beside her, knew exactly what to expect in 1939-1940 because her family were Polish refugees, and she had a fiancé in London who was begging her to come to London and marry him and get out of France. And she said, I really can't because I've got elderly parents who need me. Her mother was dying of cancer. So she stayed to try and help what began as a small group of three fine visas. And for the next two years, she went to every consul and consulate trying to get exit visas out of France and several of them made um, improper suggestions to her, which involved probably not only sex, but also jewelry. And um, she managed, by the end of the war, this family group had swollen to 12. Finally, at the end of 1941, she got visas, and they spent the war in an internment camp um, in Jamaica. So it wasn't a great war, but she survived. So um, those are two women and their activities in 1939. But come 1940, and it was a very dramatic change. Um, it was, of course, the Blitzkrieg when the Germans swiftly broke through um, at, at a, in, a line, a, in an area where the French were not prepared and occupied Paris. The changes that happened almost overnight were they, the introduction of a curfew, which varied between 10 p.m. and midnight, depending on how calm the situation was. A new exchange rate, obviously highly favorable to the Germans. Swastikas, I'm sure you all recognize this, is the Rue de Rivoli, and beside it, the Tuileries Gardens, where the French swiftly started growing vegetables. The terms of the armistice were not only huge payments of money, but goods, and since the exchange rate was so unfavorable, the shortages bit immediately. But the other interest in this picture is that there are no cars, no private cars, as gas um, became impossible to find. So women rode bicycles. And of course, when there was no rubber available to mend the tires, some women put a, a row of corks around their tires, trying to make them work like that, or stuff the tires with straw, all sorts of inventive things as the word ersatz came into everyday usage. One of the other things about this photograph is um, this woman, because when shampoo became almost impossible, women made a virtue of necessity and developed the 
turban into a highly fashionable object. And if they couldn't make the turban high enough, they'd stuff the turban with old newspaper. But it became immediately important for Parisiennes to remain stylish. At the beginning, they justified being stylish because our men at the front would expect it of us. And then, once the Germans occupied, they felt that being stylish was a form of resistance. They weren't going to be humiliated and they weren't going to have their sense of identity taken away from them. It became harder and harder. So the Germans flooded into the capital and of course coming to Paris was a plum posting. Well, of course it was better than being sent to the east but it was much more than that. Hitler, who only came once to Paris but he recognized how valuable it was as a prize, um, made the comment, jeder einmal nach Paris. In other words, every German should come to Paris at least once to explore its pleasures. And you see some of the pleasures here. But um, if we're talking about choice, I think the one group of women who really did not have any choice were the prostitutes. And it's interesting that in this um, picture, the word underneath is die Aus... You probably can't see it because it's, it's such small print. Die Auswahl, the choice for German men. So this is a privately printed booklet Probably only a hundred of them were ever created for German officers because there was a great fear that even though the defeat, the military defeat had been easily won by the Germans, perhaps the French had something else in store for them that might actually cause havoc amongst German men. So they wanted to give the officers as much advice as possible as to which brothels were safe to go to and how to use them. And I was told about this booklet, which apparently is terribly valuable and rare, in an erotic bookshop in Paris, which is not open normally. You have to make an appointment to visit it. So I was also given a piece of advice that I shouldn't go there on my own. So I went with my husband, who thought this was so wonderful. He asked why I didn't always take him on research trips. <laughs> but, um, Anyway, it wasn't only the um, German men who came to Paris. German women came too, um, flocked there actually. They were known as the auxiliaries, formally that was the polite term. Slightly less polite, the Parisian women called them grey mice. And when they really wanted to offend them, they called them officers' mattresses. But they had they had a wonderful time buying up things that absolutely were no longer available in Germany. Germany by 1940 was already suffering shortages. But at the beginning, everybody was very polite. And as you can see in the other picture at Montmartre, the men were not only handsome, but charming and smiling and friendly. And that was until, uh, that lasted while the Nazi-Soviet pact was in operation because the communists had their hands tied behind their back and couldn't resist. So um, Paris was relatively calm until Hitler invaded Russia. And then, of course, it was a very different story. But we're still 
at the beginning in 1940. And part of the jewel that Hitler felt he had captured was French theater and opera. And the Comédie Française continued almost immediately. But this woman, another of my heroines, Beatrice Bretti, um, not Jewish, she decided immediately she must leave the Comédie Française, which was a very big decision because she forfeit not only her career and her job, but her pension. That's how the Comédie Française operates. She said, I cannot be part of a national theatre that doesn't allow Jewish actors and that doesn't allow the work of Jewish playwrights to be performed. And she spent the war following her, the man she loved, Georges Mondel, who you see in the picture. Georges Mondel was the politician that Churchill really had hoped would come to London, not that lanky, unknown man called de Gaulle who nobody had heard of. But Mondel felt that he simply couldn't abandon France because he was Jewish and he said, I'll be accused of desertion and cowardice if I leave. And hers was a very poignant story because she not only followed him from one prison camp to another, she looked after his orphan daughter. And when Mondel was in Buchenwald, she wrote him a letter begging him to marry her. And he refused because he said, I know what fate is in store for me and I don't want that fate for you. And sure enough, when he was taken from one camp to another, the milice assassinated him. And I think one of the reasons why I'm so fired up with admiration for Bretti is because she looked after his reputation after he died. And when de Gaulle came to France and wanted to lay a wreath on Mondel's grave, that infuriated Bretti, who fired off a very angry letter to the local deputy saying, how dare you allow this? De Gaulle, who never did anything to save this man during his lifetime when he could have done, how dare he, after his death, come and lay a wreath on his grave? There were, of course, other choices in the Comédie Française, and I've had the great pleasure to interview this woman, who's still alive at 102. She was only 100 when I interviewed her. And she explained to me that um, she remained, but she left very promptly after each performance to catch the last Metro home so that she wasn't out after the curfew, and whenever she was asked for a drink, by a German, she just said she had to get home to her children and she said it, it could be done. But I think if you look at this picture here, you begin to see the sea of grey-green Wehrmacht uniforms, how really difficult it was if your career was a dancer or a singer. What choice did you really have? Well. Sadie Regal, who's this woman, and that's Edith Piaf, was a young South African Jewish girl who, whose life's ambition was to dance with the Ballet Russe. And in 1939, she was accepted by the Ballet Russe, who said, wait in Paris, when we come through, we'll pick you up and you'll join our troupe. But of course, war intervened and they never came. So she was caught in Paris and she was hidden by the Bal Tabarin, which was a nightclub. Many of the nightclubs were actually strongly pro-resistante, and the Bal Tabarin certainly was. So they hid her, they trained her, they gave her a false name, Florence, and she was terribly successful. But in 1943, the Germans organized, the Germans sponsored 
tours of singers and dancers to go to Germany to proclaim what a benign occupation it was in Paris and that everything in the garden is lovely. And of course, Florence did not want to go. She was frightened and she felt it was collaborating. But she was told she had to go because if she didn't, it would not only be, be dangerous for herself and give rise to people investigating her own false identity, but she'd endanger other people in the Bal Tabarin. So she went. And I think it's really interesting because Edith Piaf is often accused of collaboration because of these trips that she went on. But she always argued that by posing with German soldiers, Edith Piaf that is, and then having the photographs of the German soldiers to hand, she could then use them to make false identity cards for the French. And it's not proven that she did that on a large scale, but even if she did it for a few, I think it's difficult to, um, to accuse her of collaboration when you understand the complications of Sadie Regal, who you see in that picture. It was not quite so easy to whitewash a Wagnerian opera singer, Germaine Lubin, who you can hear singing this um, Isolde. Hitler said, I'm not sure how qualified he was, that she was the finest Isolde he'd ever heard in Bayreuth in love to let you listen to that for hours. I think it's so evocative, um, but we don't have the time. However, as you can imagine, that photograph of Germaine Lubin with Hitler is not going to speak well for her after the war. She argued that as a Wagnerian, her voice matured at a particular moment, and she had to make use of that moment. But the Germans believed that opera was their own art form, as if they'd invented it. They spent six and a half million francs on opera tickets in four years of occupation alone. So it was terribly important for them. So obviously, Germaine Lubin was seen on stage. She couldn't argue that she hadn't performed to Germans. She did have a German lover as well. And here you see her with a very young Herbert von Karajan, who brought the Berlin Staatsoper to Paris at one point. So after the war, of course, she's one of the first who's going to be rounded up on charges of collaboration. She was treated very harshly. She had three years <clears throat> in prison 
on and off while they were sorting out her, the charges against her. But she was found guilty and she was sentenced to a new crime of degradation nationale, which is really being stripped of all your rights of citizenship. She was um, subjected to a form of exile and her home was taken away from her. Eventually, she was allowed back to Paris, but she couldn't work anymore on stage. She was humiliated and she was able to get some work teaching um, singing, but her own son, a few years afterwards, committed suicide. So all these stories throw long shadows. For people in business, the big change in Paris was obviously Aryanization. Jews couldn't own any businesses, so there were lots of businesses that were empty, and here you see <clears throat> just some of the leaflets advertising these businesses um, that had probably been sold at knockdown rates and many of the letters that I've seen are signed from a good French housewife. I think I could run this business. But even if you weren't Jewish, the decisions as to how you would deal with a business in wartime was complicated. And Coco Chanel decided, as she approached 60, that actually it wasn't appropriate to run a business in Paris during wartime. So she closed up shop and moved into the Ritz with her very handsome, much younger German lover. I don't actually believe that Chanel was a traitor, but she didn't behave well during the war. She certainly wasn't a résistante either. And what she tried to do was to buy back her perfume business, because in the 1920s, she'd needed money, she'd needed investors. So she'd accepted an investment from the Jewish Wertheimer brothers, and she thought during the war, ah, now it's making so much money, I can get it back from them, of course, because it won't be Aryanized. Well, in fact, the Wertheimers had Aryanized it, they were a step ahead of her. Um, so she couldn't buy it back, but she carried on fighting. And her lawyer after the war, who was Count René de Chambre, who was married to José Laval, the daughter of Pierre Laval, um, helped Chanel fight. And in the end, for peace, they did give her quite a substantial part of the perfume business. So she was immensely rich after the war, so rich that she certainly never needed to work again. But um, the jewellery business, which, as I've said, was one of the things that was flourishing during the war, was particularly complicated because to buy stones and precious metals, you need money. So this woman who you see here, Suzanne Belperron, was one of the most talented designers of her era. She never signed her pieces. She said, my style is my signature. And the Duchess of Windsor, of course, was one of her customers too. She didn't have a shop front either. You had to know who she was by word of mouth. But all of Le Tout Paris knew precisely who Suzanne Belperron was. Um, she had taken in money from this man, Bernard Ertz, a pearl dealer, and he quite clearly was in love with her. But during the war, she tried to buy it back, so she tried to Aryanize it, but she was betrayed, 
as it was said to be, a false Aryanization. And Bernard Ertz was taken prisoner, first of all, to Drancy, which is the um, housing the, the, the um, unfinished housing estate in Paris that was used um, as a holding station before shipping the inmates to Auschwitz. And while Bernard Ertz was in Drancy, he wrote Suzanne Belperron, one of the most moving letters I think I've, I've ever read. I'm just going to read you a snatch. I do not at all regret staying in Paris, as I thereby shorten the time I will spend away from you. If I had my time again, I would do it all again. Forgive me for all the trouble I caused you. It seems I bring you nothing else when what I wanted so much was your happiness. Thank you for everything. And after seven months at Drancy, Ertz was deported to Auschwitz, where he was killed on September the 2nd, 1943. Suzanne Belperon continued to run the business, and after the war, um, Jean Ertz, who's Bernard's son, returned from being a prisoner of war and um, was able to run the business with her. So... In trying to understand the question I posed right at the beginning, why was, why was jewellery something that women would think about at a time of war? I began to understand it during my visit to Boucheron because when raw materials were not available for new jewellery, they insisted on any new piece of jewellery you had to bring the exact weight in of the, um, piece you, the new piece you wanted. Or in fact, if it was platinum, you had to bring in one and a half times the weight. But many of the women felt so angry with their menfolk. They felt humiliated, let down that they'd allowed this defeat to happen, that it had been the women who were abandoned in this city of, of, of women. Two million men were taken prisoners of war and other men had gone to join de Gaulle in England. So Paris was a feminized city. It was the women who had to make everyday decisions as to how they responded to the German occupier. If they'd walk out of a cafe or just every day, whether they'd be polite or walk the other side of the street. And to understand how angry they felt, I was shown these boxes, evening bags, clutch bags, that women had made by bringing in the family silver and having it mel melted down in order to have the latest fashion in an evening bag. And these very definitely were the latest fashion because they had compartments inside for powder and lipstick for women to make up on the street. Now, pre-war, if a Parisian woman had any aspirations to class, making up in public was utterly shocking. But the fact that women chose to have these bags deliberately so that they could make up in public was saying we're, we're, we're very cross with the men who we feel have let us down. And th there are many of them um, that, that were made. Another thing that the women did to remain stylish was to have their mesh stockings mended and mended until they could be mended no more. 
and when leather ran out and shoes were made of cork and they didn't think that cork shoes were really very smart so they'd spend evenings covering their cork shoes with a fabric that would match their dress. That's all pretty harmless but this is real collaboration, economic collaboration. By and large, I don't like the word collaboration, it's very harsh. It was used, first of all, by Pétain when he said he would collaborate. I think for women in Paris, mostly it was a question of collusion or doing a deal. But this is, is real economic collaboration, um, Franco-German textile cooperation to overcome the shortages of fabric. So it, this fabric, which they gave a pretty name, Fibran, but it's actually a, a synthetic fiber, probably we'd call it rayon today, but it's, um, it relied on cellulose from pine trees that the Germans brought in in order to make this fabric. And it looks fine on the model on the catwalk on this occasion, but it wasn't really fine because as soon as you washed it, it shrank in half. But <laughs> the Germans were keen to keep the um, factories and to keep the designers in business partly because their wives were buying but it also meant a quiet unoccupied population and so this um, was encouraged something called a day of elegance on a bicycle when the designers had to come up with the most fashionable way for women to ride their bicycles because of course they couldn't wear trousers so in fact what you see here are divided skirts or culottes. I mean, of course, they're trousers by another name, um, culottes with a flap over the front, but um, you couldn't actually call them trousers. And when shortages bit, they introduced ration cards or ration tokens, and here's um, a woman counting up the coupons because often there wasn't enough to buy a whole dress, but you could at least buy some new lingerie, which was part of the, the feel-good factor. And then, of course, in 1942, um, they introduced the Yellow Star. I say they, but the laws were made in Vichy, even though Vichy itself pride, prided itself on the fact that its citizens didn't have to wear the Yellow Star, but Jews in Paris did, and it cost three textile coupons. And I think of all the photographs, this is the one that's made me try and examine my own conscience. How would I behave if, for example, on the streets of London, foreigners were made to wear a badge with F for foreigner? Would you, as I've put in my book, a Catholic went up to women wearing a yellow star and said, I want to behave like a good Catholic, so I'm going to shake your hands. I'm ashamed of my government. Or would you walk on the other side of the street? And I think if you look at this picture and you see the women staring and those women holding hands to give each other courage, it's, it's one of the pictures that for me helps me try and understand what it must have been like a little bit. Um, Irene Nemirovsky was Jewish and had to wear a star, but she didn't identify as Jewish, she didn't feel Jewish, she felt French. She was actually born in Russia, but she'd lived in France for a long time and just hadn't got round to 
claiming citizenship, which she would have been entitled to, but it was too late when she set about um, applying for it. And she loved France. She wrote in French. She believed she understood France. It, it, that's who she was. And she was a well-known writer in the 1930s. But she's a good example of the French paradox that I talked of at the beginning, because she didn't really have the choice. She couldn't write. Her publishers, Albin Michel, weren't allowed to publish her, but they behaved decently. They sent her a stipend, and she organized her governess, actually, to take the money and pretend she was the writer, and then um, she paid over the money to Irene. Irene converted to Catholicism and her children were Catholics and she had them baptized and she attended mass regularly. Nonetheless, she was arrested by two French policemen. So that's why she's part of the French paradox. It was French police who arrested her in 1942 as part of Operation Spring Wind. She was taken to Pithiviers and then Auschwitz, where she died of typhoid. But on the other hand, her two children, who were, whose surname was Epstein, survived because good French individuals looked after them and hid them and took them to a number of different homes and schools. And they not only survived, but in their suitcase, they had an unfinished manuscript, only two parts of what Irene hoped would be a five-part symphony, which we now know as Suite Française. And I don't know if any of you have seen the film, but I just wanted to show you this still from it, because I think, first of all, it was a masterpiece, and we've lost a great writer. But I think what Irene understood so well with her very sharp powers of observation was not only were not all Germans bad, many Germans were good and cultured and did not want to be in the position they were, but that it was the women who had to respond to them, particularly in this case when Germans were billeted on French families. And I think this picture evokes that difficulty so well. So, Irene was rounded up in 1942. Operation Spring Wind was part of a much wider operation, which was organized by Vichy France, and 13,000 Parisian Jews were rounded up, including 4,000 children, the youngest of whom was 18 months, because Vichy decided that they didn't want abandoned children left. It would be more sensible to round up the children as well so that the state didn't have the problem of having taken parents away who'd look after the children. And they were taken to the Velodrome d'Hiver in Paris. So this is often referred to as the Veldive Roundup. And this is France's shame because at the time the Germans wouldn't have had the manpower to, to, um, to, to do this roundup and they were prosecuting a war. And France has had great difficulty over the years in accepting its responsibility in this. But in 1995, Jacques Chirac did finally confront the issues and, so, and accept French culpability. And that's why this monument is in Paris with the curved 
bench that the families are trying to sit on to represent the highly unsuitable Veldive where they were taken. So after the roundups in 1942, really there wasn't anybody in Paris who didn't have an inkling of what was going on or who didn't have some friend who had been taken. And that was when the resistance really began. And it was many women who undertook acts of resistance. As you see here, perhaps it was putting political leaflets under the door. There was an organization called Témoignage Chrétien that was trying to bolster the resistance. But that was very dangerous because if you put it under the wrong door and the trail came back to you, you could be arrested for that. So you had to know where you were taking it. But many of the women were not recognized after the war because they didn't formally join a resistance network, a réseau. They weren't, and the word is homologue. So because of that, they probably hadn't been responsible for wielding weapons. And so de Gaulle, when he gave his awards after the war, gave it to those men who'd been responsible for using weapons. They were combattants. They'd been fighting in combat. Whereas what the women did was take evading airmen maybe from one safe house to another, maybe hide him or maybe deliver these tracts. Individual acts of great courage, I believe. And that's why I've tried to show in my book as many images of women who did actually wield weapons. And this lovely smiling woman here, Marie-France Geoffroy Deschaumes, actually was part of an organized resistance network and she cycled around Normandy with explosives strapped to her chest and she made mixed up homemade bombs on her kitchen table and she survived and came to live in England. And I'm lucky enough to know her daughter who's a potter and who has said to me, I wish my mother had talked about this. So that's another reason why these stories often aren't known. Many of the women just got on with their lives and didn't talk about it. Now, back to Odette Fabius, the woman we saw at the beginning in her wedding dress. Well, as I've told you, she went to Marseille and dressed in her L'Envin suit with a copy of Das Capital under her arm. She was sent to meet Pierre Ferry Pisani. They fell passionately in love, but the resistance needed money. So he said to her, look, I've got a diamond here, but you know about jewelry. That's your world, not mine. Try and sell it and make some money. So she took it to Vichy, where she knew René Puissant, Rachel Van Cleef, the woman at the beginning of my story. And René gave her lots of money for it, far more money than it was worth, a truly heroic act. And a few days after that, she threw herself out of the window. Odette went back to Marseille and shortly after she and Pierre were betrayed, they were rounded up and taken to prison camps on the way there. They held hands, sang the Marseillaise, declared undying love and said after the war we'll get married and this will be a better world. He was taken to the salt mines of Magdeburg which he just survived but was very frail and she was taken to Ravensbrück, the political, the, the camp for political prisoners. And as I've been talking about Vichy, 
I just think it's important to understand it was Vichy that made the, the laws. Vichy where the statutes against Jews were formulated. And at the same time as creating the laws, Vichy was undergoing a sort of social revolution itself, whereby it was proclaiming the opposite of liberté, fraternité, égalité. Vichy proclaimed patrie, famille, and travail, and encouraged women to go back to the home. And what you see in these posters, or particularly that one, is Vichy was trying to persuade women to send more men to work in German factories. And as a result, of course, of the laws that Vichy was promulgating, more people were sent to the camps and immediately the milice moved in and looted the apartments. But by 1943, the Allies <coughs> were preparing for the invasion and the liberation. And so to bolster the liberation, Churchill was sending women back to France um, as special operations executives, SOE agents. There were 39 women because to send a young man of fighting age would, uh, to, onto the streets of Paris would immediately draw attention to himself. So women had to be used, but their lives were marked out as possibly if they were a wireless operator, they'd survive for six weeks. They were given as much training as possible. They were mostly highly idealistic young women who'd grown up in Paris and now were being sent back to Paris, not, um, not as spies, but actually to bolster the French resistance. And the woman you see here, Princess Noor Inyat Khan, who was half American, half Indian, um, as you can see in the photograph, she was a musician, she wrote children's fairy tales. It's hard to think of anyone less suitable, but she was incredibly brave, and she was probably dropped into a compromised circuit from day one, and she was finally murdered at Dachau. But when the liberation came, women were eager to play their parts, as you see here, and the liberation, of course, brought joy, finally. And um, this man, who was a Czech refugee called Robert Maxwell, who became a newspaper tycoon in Britain and was in Paris briefly, where he met a Parisienne teacher, Elisabeth Maynard. And being the clever sort of person that he was, he was able to source her wedding dress out of parachute silk. And they then came back to live in England. But the other side of the joy of liberation is, of course, this, where thousands of women were attacked, really in revenge attacks, because there were no trials for the women who had their heads shaved, the tondu, and often they were um, forced to parade naked around the towns with um, tattoos sometimes of a swastika on their forehead. So although I've been telling you about women who have behaved bravely, there were, of course, many who collaborated, and I'm not in any way trying to whitewash that. Um, according to some figures, there were 200,000 Franco-German babies born, so that's quite a lot of collaboration horizontale. Um, 
nobody, of course, knows the figures because these women mostly disappeared into Germany. But some of them were true romances, some of them were rapes, and some of them were of necessity to get a crust of bread for their child. And after the war, as I said at the beginning, why haven't these stories been told? Well, the woman in the dress is called Denise Dufournier. She was a barrister who joined the resistance and was sent to Ravensbrück, survived. And after the war, she wrote immediately the first account of what the camp at Ravensbrück was like. And then she married, had children, and never wanted to talk about it again. She only wanted normalcy. The other woman, Rose Vallon, is an extraordinary story. If any of you have seen um, The Monuments Men, you'll know she was played by Kate Blanchett, who was heroically trying to seduce George Clooney. I say, <laughs> I, I say heroically because I think um, she was a curator at the Jeux de Paume, or at least she tried to be a curator, but women couldn't be curators. So she acted as a curator without formally being one. And she noted all the looted um, pictures that were being shipped off to Germany by, by the Nazis. And after the war, she was put in uniform and sent to continue that work with the Commission for Recuperate Recovered Art. Um, but I think the reason that her story has not been told is that she doesn't fit into the myth of macho resistance workers. She was actually a lesbian, and her partner was an English woman translator. And I think um, that partly she kept her private life private, but also it didn't quite fit de Gaulle's image when he welcomed back France's sons, um, that is S-O-N-S, and he, he started the myth that the resistance was all male and only a miserable fistful had resisted. So other women who faced charges were, of course, actors because, as I've said, they were highly visible for having propped up the whole ideal that Paris continued as normal. And here you see Corinne Lucher, um, the actress who was sentenced to 10 years of degradation nationale, but she died of TB um, before her full sentence could be served. She was very unpopular because she was the daughter of a Vichy um, French Gestapo newspaper owner, but other actresses fared slightly better. I mean, the popular actress Arletti, who also had a German lover, had to face charges, but because she was deeply loved, she didn't serve her full sentence, and most people remember her because at her trial she'd proclaimed that, um, although my heart is French, my arse is international. Um, <laughs> And the other picture is this one, is Genevieve de Gaulle, who is um, the niece of the general, the woman that I did interview before she died, and she's giving evidence about the camps because she was a prisoner in Ravensbrück where she nearly died. So post-war, um, as many British and Americans flooded into Paris, the Paris that they had always loved. Some, some Americans stayed in Paris throughout the war. Um, 
the woman standing by the stove is Julia Child, who came to Paris in 1949 and discovered the joys of French cuisine, um, bringing them to a new audience. And this woman, Comtesse de Ronty, who was in Ravensbrück and whose husband died in another camp, they were both resistors from the word go. And she, after the war, had no money and wanted somehow to maintain the home for her daughter and decided, like many um, impoverished aristocrats after the war in France, to take in paying guests. Only she took in Jacqueline Bouvier as her paying guest. And after the war, whenever everyone said what Parisian style Jacqueline had, that's why she spent a year in Paris with this woman who'd survived Ravensbrück concentration camp. One other American woman, an honorary Parisienne that I have to mention is this woman, Caroline Faraday, who lived in Connecticut, at Bethlehem, Connecticut. And she was a Francophile who worked for um, the French cause, France forever, throughout the war. She never married. She was very wealthy. And she devoted her entire life to French, the French cause, but particularly after the war, to those young Polish women who'd been experimented on in Ravensbrück, who were known as the Polish Lapin, and they became stateless after the war. Nobody wanted to claim responsibility for their terrible... Um, they'd been maimed and, as I say, experimented on, and Caroline Faraday fought for them to have better medical care in America and some kind of pension. And back to the bright side again, um, immediately after the liberation, the couture houses got together and decided they must create this Petit Théâtre de la Mode, a miniature version of their couture designs to establish quickly the French dominance while the rest of the world was still fighting in 44 until 45. They took this show around the world proclaiming um, that haute couture is French or it's nothing, certainly not the sort of casual American clothes that were starting to become fashionable. And then in 1947, Christian Dior invented the new look, so-called, because it had reams of fabric, but actually, I don't think it's new at all. It harks back to the Belle Epoque. It required women to wear corsets again, when Chanel had done so much to liberate women to wear comfortable clothes. So these are not clothes for working women at all. And in fact, one of de Gaulle's ministers um, called on women to go back to their homes, to give up their checkbooks, to give up being punctual, to give up their jobs for the returning men who, after all, felt so humiliated they surely must be given their jobs back. And at one of um, Dior's shows, his sister Catherine Dior breezed in um, and According to mythology, that's why the perfume from then on was called Miss Dior. But why has nobody known the story of Catherine Dior, um, who joined the resistance because she fell in love with this man, Hervé Deschabonnières, who was a married man with children, and they lived together after the war. The picture here 
shows Catherine Dior shortly after she was released from Ravensbrook, and she never wanted to talk about her own story because she was truly living in sin in a traditional Catholic environment. It wasn't acceptable to say that she was living with a married man and his children. So I'm just very privileged to give voice to her story. Not everybody felt that the new look was so wonderful at a time of shortages in Paris, but Cartier tried to make the most of it by saying the Parisian bird is free and made this brooch that was highly popular. So to finish with, I just want to remind you of how the women started the war with their fashionable cylindrical bags and how many of them finished the war building roads in Ravensbrook. And as I've tried to understand so many things about women's lives during this decade, I've tried really to understand what it means to be a Parisienne. And I think it's much more than the superficial version of the word simply being stylish and caring about fashion. It's what gave you the spirit to survive the war. And the woman here is Elizabeth de Rothschild, who actually was not Jewish and was no longer married to Philip de Rothschild, so she was divorced when she was taken to Ravensbrook, and she simply could not understand why she'd been arrested and why she was there, and she was murdered in Ravensbrook. But the other woman, who looks like a skeleton, is actually Odette Fabius, my heroine from the early picture. And she tried to escape from Ravensbrook, but she was brought back and beaten and tortured and thought she wouldn't survive, but she did. And her daughter and granddaughter, who I've been lucky enough to get to know their neighbors of mine in England, um, such are the wonders of the internet that you can discover these things. And they told me that um, Odette decided when she was given her one ounce of fat to eat each day, that actually it was better to rub it into her hands if she was going to have to build roads. And that's how she survived. But after the war, when she met again Pierre Ferry Pisani, and he hoped that they would get married, she had to tell him that actually she decided to go back to her husband and make an arrangement with him because they had a child and she couldn't marry him, so he committed suicide. And I think it's constantly this understanding of the amazing courage and what you might call the bright side contrasted with the terrible hardships and suffering um, that I've really tried to understand. But after the war, as far as most French were concerned, they really wanted to put all this behind them, which again is perfectly understandable, and just to convey to the rest of the world that actually life is beautiful. Des yeux qui font baisser les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche, voilà le portrait sans retouche de 
find it on YouTube, but if there's, if there's a moment left, I probably should um, have questions if you want, or if that's not done here or there isn't time, uh, come and ask. Do, do we have questions? Good. Great. Okay. Thank you for listening. <laughs>